Okay, well, if you're a guest here uh, with us, um, I'm, we are studying through the book of Hosea. We're going to continue on with the book of Hosea. This is message 29 in our Minor Prophet series. Um, I don't know what message this is in the book of Hosea, but if you're a guest, we've covered the book of Obadiah, Joel, Amos, uh, Jonah, and now we're, we're in Hosea. Okay, Hosea. Now, listen, if you're here and you're kind of like, I don't really know the background, go on our website, go to our app. By the way, did y'all know that we do have an app for our church, right? Um, it's filled with selfie pictures of myself, okay, and all sorts of things like that. So you want to download it. Um, and so uh, you, can, you can download that anywhere. You can pick up uh, all of our sermons on that app. But you'll go back and you'll hear a lot of context. Um, let's do this. Would you stand in reverence to the reading of God's Word? I want to read... Hosea chapter 7. The title of today's message is, Even if we don't notice, Yahweh does. Remember, Yahweh is the Old Testament name, the personal name for God. Yahweh. means I am what I am. How could the infinite God describe himself? No, no other way but to say, I am what I am. I mean, that's, that's, how, that's, that's how so infinite he is. Now, let's read Hosea chapter 7 in this idea of, even if... They don't notice the northern kingdom of Israel, Yahweh does. So he says in chapter 7, verse 1, When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would, this is what Yahweh is saying to the prophet Hosea, when I would heal Israel and the iniquity of Ephraim, that's referring to the northern kingdom ultimately, is revealed, and the evil deeds of Samaria, referring to the northern kingdom, for they will deal falsely. The thief breaks in and the bandits raid outside. Verse 2. But they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face, Yahweh says. Verse 3. But their evil, they make the king, by their evil, they make the king glad. And their princes, by their treachery, they are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine and stretched out his hand with mockers. For with hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night, their anger smolders. In the morning, it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven. They devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Once again, Ephraim were referring to the largest of the ten tribes of the northern kingdom, but often referring just to the northern kingdom. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon them, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Ephraim is like a dove, silly, without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread and I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like the birds of heaven. I will discipline them according to the report made to the, their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from their heart. But they do well upon their beds for grain and wine. They gnash themselves. They rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. Would we ask, let's ask the Holy Spirit for his help. Once again, Holy Spirit, as we open this book, there is a, a, 
There's a natural intellectual ability to study God's word, but Holy Spirit, only you can actually put light on it. Only you can actually bring understanding. Help us to capture what you're communicating to the northern kingdom of Israel. Then let us make an application to our life today. Let us use God's word to do what it's been put here for, to show us what's right, what's wrong, how to get right, how to stay right, how to be fully equipped disciple makers, to live to your glory. Help us in this. And God's people said, amen, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So we're in chapter seven. If you're wondering, man, I, I get lost in this. Well, join the club. There's nothing easy about studying the Old Testament, especially the minor prophets. But if you'll drink plenty of coffee and get plenty of sleep and, and you know, don't watch the late night with Jimmy Fallon. Actually, that's probably not on Saturday nights, but nonetheless, you, you'll, you'll get something out of this. So here's the title of the message. Even if we don't notice, Yahweh does. Now, I find it interesting. Look in chapter 7, verse 1 of Hosea. Uh, this kind of doesn't go with the message, but this is kind of off topic a little bit. But I just thought this was very interesting. The Holy Spirit really, I think, put this on my soul this week as um, some of our 40 hours of driving for about four or five hours of that, Cindy drove and I just did some study. And one time when I was studying at verse one, the Lord hit me with a thought. It was somewhere, I think, between uh, New Orleans and Florida, right? There's lots of thoughts the Lord hits you when you leave New Orleans. And it says in chapter seven, verse one, when I restore the fortunes of my people, by the way, that's good news. We'll talk about that later. When I would heal Israel, remember, he's, he's going to, he's disciplining them for their good. He ultimately wants good for them. The iniquity of Ephraim is revealed. That was interesting. For God to discipline them, he had to open up and reveal their sin to them because they weren't noticing it. God noticed it, but they weren't, right? I mean, all over the minor prophets, this is God saying, this is, this is your sin. Know about it. Repent of it. Or I'll have to discipline you for your good. But there was, when I was reading this and just thinking about it, this idea came up, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed, is revealed. You know, one of the most glorious things that can happen for a follower of Christ is for your sin to get revealed. It really is. It's glorious. Frightening, but glorious. I began to think about that, the times in my life where Sometimes my sin had got found out and I didn't want it to. And then sometimes by sheer conviction, I confessed my sin and received the freedom it was to finally go like, I'm out. You know, like now it's known. I was just in this and the Holy Spirit, this directly tied the message. It's just this idea that I had that like, what a relief for Ephraim in the end. What a relief for the northern kingdom of Israel to just be found out. And then I begin to think this. I wonder in our congregation, is there secret sin that we may be dealing with that, that the most glorious thing for your soul will be to get found out? And I'm telling you, the most glorious thing you could do as you walk out of this place today is to go confess that sin to God, confess that sin against those people. And I'm telling you, there's nothing better than living clean. There is, I mean, there's nothing better than a clear conscience before the Lord. There is nothing almost as vexing as a conscience that is not clean before the Lord. I love that even in his discipline, there's so much grace. I love the grace 
The iniquity of Ephraim is revealed. That's good news for Ephraim because that revealing actually lets him deal with the sin. That revealing actually brings joy in the long run. Now, that's free. We won't pass an offering plate for that, although I don't think we have any. But nonetheless, we just have, we just have uh, boxes. So that's kind of something the Lord kind of put on me. Um, now, let's do this. Uh, let's walk through. Uh, by the way, you should have got, um, maybe there at the end of the row, there's some announcements on the back. There's kind of an outline. That's the outline I'm going to be following. Okay, so if you don't have one, then just kind of look at your neighbor and say, give me one. And uh, you can say a little bit nicer than that, and they'll pass you down a paper, and you'll have kind of an outline for this message. Okay, y'all okay today? Y'all good? Okay. Y'all, 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 y'all need some coffee? Y'all okay? All right, all right, so I'll make sure you're okay. Okay, look at point number one. There's a couple things. They didn't notice, but Yahweh did. They didn't, you know, and... and and even if we don't notice, Yahweh said, that's kind of the idea I get when I, when I look at chapter 7 of Hosea. I see seven things that they did not notice. And what's interesting, the seven things that it seems like they didn't notice, they almost build on each other. And almost when I look at my own life, when I look in my own pastoral ministry and how I, and when I'm discipling people and, and, and I just look and say, like, almost these seven things almost build on themselves. Like, if you have one, then you'll kind of, then you kind of have the next. So, for instance, look at number one on your outline. The first thing, I think, when we look in chapter seven, they did not notice their theology. Now, remember, in the text, we find that, that in verse three, in verse two, it says, they did not consider that I remember all their evil. This is what Yahweh is saying. Nor the deeds surrounding them, they are before my face. Yahweh is telling them, I am not like you. You may forget. You may wink at sin, but I don't. Like, I, I am not like you. And by the way, this is one of the profound things that, that really that challenge people. You know, oftentimes we think of God like us. We do. Oftentimes, I, I, I cannot tell you how many times I've heard this phrase. I know what the Bible says, but that's not what I think my God's like, right? Well, the truth is you have the wrong God. You don't have, he's not made in our image. We're made in his image. And what happens in the text is God's letting them know that although you may not notice, I notice. And, and I am not like you. I don't forget. I don't wink at sin. I know exactly what's going on. Their theology. They didn't notice their theology. That word theology, I know it kind of seems like, oh, now I want to take a nap. But that's a really good word. That's, a, that's like one of those blankets that surrounds your arms and you wrap up together. That's like a cozy word. Theo means God. Ology means study. It's the study of God. They didn't have a great study of God. If they did, they would have accurate thoughts about God. They didn't have accurate thoughts about God. They thought God didn't notice. They thought they could hide things from Yahweh. They didn't consider, it says in verse 2, that I remember all their evil. They didn't consider that he notices, that he surrounds them, that, they, that everything they do is before his face. I saw this one quote. Secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. Secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. See, God doesn't forget about the Mosaic law that he had told them to follow. God didn't forget about all the things that he had given them. God has not forgot about Deuteronomy 28, which told them how they could be blessed in the land of Israel. God did not forget anything, and it all was before their face. All their sin was before his face. But they had done something that I think what we do a lot of times is we do not notice our theology properly, our study of God, who God is. A lot of times, I'm telling you, I've just been around the block enough. 
a lot of times people base their theology, their study of God off of what they think and not what the actual word says. I'm telling you, I cannot describe to you how many times I, there these things that people say about God, and it's not informed by this. It's informed by maybe their own experience or how the, how they think God should be. I mean, I think a lot of times we think God is just this kind of like our old grandpa that, you, you know, well, this is what I noticed, like, like a grandpa, a grandparents. Have you ever wonder, like, when you see grandparents and wondering, like, where were these people when I got raised, right? You ever wonder, like, man, you got away with nothing. Then you have your own kids, and then you see how your parents respond to your kids, and you're like, who are these people, right? I would have I got beat if this would have happened. I, I, like, who are these people? Sometimes we think that's what God is like, just this mischievous grandpa that just kind of winks at things. No, the theology of Scripture actually says he's a holy God, and he wants us to walk in holiness, and he has made us holy through the work of Christ. So their theology was off. So God is trying to remind them, which, by the way, this is his grace again. Verse 2, but they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. So the first kind of deal is they, they don't notice their theology, what they believe about God. And I will tell you this, what we believe about God will determine our behavior. Get that. What we believe about God will determine our behavior. It's really true. I mean, take that phrase and walk into any aspect of our life, and I'm telling you it'll be true. What you believe about God will determine your behavior. And not only that, so they did not notice their theology, who God was. God's trying to remind them. They're still not noticing it. And then here's what, this kind of builds on itself. Look at the second point. Is everybody with me? Okay, all right. Y'all still loving the minor prophets? Okay, I got two people. Great. That's all we need. They did not notice their exceeding sinfulness. I often notice that when my theology about who God is is off, I'm often not seeing my sin. I'm often not admitting the exceeding sinfulness of my sin. I'm, I'm thinking I'm kind of maybe, you know, I'm just a mild sinner, not really realizing just... How actually, how, how actually morally capable I am of going so astray from the Lord. They did not notice their exceeding sinfulness. Look at verse 3. By their evil, they make the king glad, and the princes by their treachery. I, I don't know exactly what they were doing in this text, but what's happening obviously is the people are doing some kind of evil, and the kings of, North, of the northern kingdom are happy about it. Even the princes, they, they think it's funny. They think it's great. They... They're signing off on it. The political leaders of Israel are saying like, hey, God's word may say that sin, but as the, political, as the king and princes, we don't think it is. In fact, we kind of like it. Let's like party together on it. Now, I'm not trying to be ugly with this application. I'm just trying to give you a real, real world idea. You remember years ago um, when our country was kind of, kind of fighting the battle of how to treat marriage between people of the same sex and that battle was going on? I, I remember that um, I was having a discussion with somebody who, um, not a follower of Christ and had a completely different view. You know, their view that was that um, a person of the same sex should be able to get married and there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. And as we began to talk about that, um, they, they weren't coming from a scriptural perspective, but as we were just trying to have thought, we were having thoughtful conversation, their last point was, well, listen, when the government says it's okay, then it's okay. Right? That was their final point. Like, 
So the final point was, no matter what the scriptures say, no matter what your Bible says, when the government says it's okay, then it's okay. And my response was, no, it's not. Like, the government never has more authority than what God has in his word. And so the person said, what, you, so you're telling me you, you wouldn't accept this? And I was like, no, actually, I wouldn't. Because the government is not a bigger authority than my God. It, and I remember in that time, now was, this wasn't a mean conversation. By the way, just if you we are not a homosexual hating church, right? We love everybody. And, you know, the thing you've got to make sure is you don't treat homosexuality different than you treat any other, any other sin. I mean, like, like so, like, you've you got to be cautious of that. But I remember when I gave that response to the person, the person was just taken aback. And they just could not even calculate that, that idea. Well, this is what happens when, when people aren't having good theology of God, then they're not seeing the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And when they're not seeing the exceeding sinfulness of sin, what happens is they think they can call righteousness whatever they want to call righteousness. And if the culture signs off on it at large, then it's okay. Are y'all tracking me what I'm saying? Like, so listen, even if the culture says something is okay, but the word of God says it's not, doesn't matter what the culture says. But this is what we're running to in the text. We see it in verse 2, don't you? Verse 3, by their evil they make the king glad, and the princes by their treachery. The, 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 the political leaders had signed off on it, and so the people were like, this is okay. In fact, their political leaders, the kings and princes, were kind of joining into the party. Now look at verse 4. They are all, what does God say? They're adulterers. He's like, yeah, it's all wrong. He says this, they are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. Now, let me tell you, when you look at verse 4, you're like, what are you talking about? Like, what? I know you're using an illustration, God. Like, I don't, I don't get this. Like, how, how does this work? Well, um, from everything I read, and I don't know much about ancient ovens, but what I, I do understand from the ovens that they had at times and the sources of heat they used that, and you can even see this, I mean, if you pay enough money and get a really, really good grill, sometimes this will happen. But this is how you know you bought something cheap and you bought something really expensive, right? That when you heat up a grill, if it's a really, really good grill, it holds that temperature for a while, right? Even though the coals are, it just, it just holds that temperature well. What in the text, what seems to be indicating is basically a baker starts a fire. He's kneading the dough. The dough's got to be leavened. It's got to rise, right? And in that process you'd think that the heat would go down in the oven, but that oven is such a good consistency that even though the coals may not have been stirred and fired up, those coals have already got that oven to a certain temperature. It's holding that temperature, which means if it's holding that temperature, you put the bread in, it's going to bake instantly, which is basically saying that oven is ready, set to cook. Everybody with me on me? Everybody tracking with me on that idea? The oven is ready, set, cook. That's what it's saying in verse 4. Now, how does that relate to this idea of the, their exceeding sinfulness? What he's saying is this. That's how sinful we are. We're like an oven that's ready. I, you know, sometimes I think people don't see just how exceedingly sinful they are. They, because what they'll do is we'll have like maybe a period of life where we fight sin well and, or we'll just look at the outward opposite of sin in our life and we'll just kind of go, oh man, yeah, I'm doing good. I'm, I'm not. But, but really, if we're being honest with what the scriptures say about the deception of our own hearts is we can be just like that oven. Like it may appear that the coals aren't firing very hot, but but really that oven is ready, set, go. 
Are you understand? I mean, that, that oven is ready, set, go on the inside. I think that's us many times. We, just because there may not be a sin we're indulging in outwardly, does not mean that in our hearts we're not salivating over that sin, lusting after that sin. And it could be the very fact that we just haven't been put in the environment where we can indulge that sin. But I will tell you this, Satan is a wonderful tempter and people will find their way. And this is how sin works. Sin never works in this idea of, I just accidentally got into sin. We get into sin because we lust and think about it and desire it. It's this, this is what our hearts are like. We're like ovens that are holding the temperature of rebellion. And by the way, if you know the exceeding sinfulness of your sin, this makes you repent really fast. And by the way, if we know the exceeding sinfulness of sin, this makes it to where you're hard to be offended. You know, the people that get offended so easily in life, which I know is no one in this room, right? None of y'all get offended by anything. I know, I can see it. But I know this, the times in life where I am least to get offended by people and give the benefit of the doubt is when I am noticing that the oven's actually already hot. And that, and that as a sinner, I may not have a great angle. What they just said to me, I may not have interpreted that correctly. I mean, I am an exceedingly sinful. Now, it's interesting. Look at verse 5. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. By the way, don't know much about alcohol, right? Um, but, but through the years, my first drink of alcohol was at age 26, okay? 26 was my first time to have a drink of alcohol, right? And um, through the years, I've tried to just like try different things to kind of see like, okay, would there be one that I like? Just I come from a teetotaler background. You know, the scriptures condemn the abuse of alcohol. The use of alcohol is under liberty. But here's what I noticed. The first time I had something really, really strong, because most of the time I'd have like, you know, those really fluffy things that, you know, only girls drink, right? But nothing like really strong. I remember the first time I tried something strong. And you know what it felt like? it felt like fire heat was coming out of my esophagus, right? I mean, like, there's just some heat there. So when I remember reading this, I was just like, they became sick with the heat of wine. I'm like, yeah, I get it. I can remember that, like, you just felt like you were just like, you could have just, like, spewed fire out of your mouth. So he says this, on the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with the mockers. So these kings are now just getting completely plastered by alcohol, which just is a side note. You're going to see this whole text builds on itself. So if they don't notice their theology, okay, the right theology of God, which means they're also not going to notice the exceeding sinfulness of who they are. And I would just say this. I don't believe the Bible condemns the use of alcohol. I believe it's under liberty. But I would say this. If, we're, if you are a person whose theology of God is weak, you do not understand the depravity of your nature. Personally, I don't think I'd ever talk, touch a drop of alcohol. Like, I will say this. Alcohol is dangerous for the person who doesn't have discernment. It is, is not something that you should ever have if you're just going to kind of, if you're just kind of living life kind of wonky, okay? It's something that can actually overpower and master you. It's something God has given to make merry. It's something that God has given us, but is nothing to be used if you're a person whose theology is off and cannot see the exceeding sinfulness of your life. And by the way, that, isn't that true? I mean, any of you who've ever known someone who was enslaved to alcohol know that one of the hardest parts is for someone to admit that they're actually an alcoholic, right? Why is that? Because they don't have a theology of God and they don't see the exceeding sinfulness. Now, that's just free. I mean, so don't do it. it you know, a person whose theology of God is off and, and does, not, does not see the exceeding sinfulness of their sin, so they're not always on guard about, how everything can lead them into sin. I mean, 
it mixes as good as like lobster and ice cream, okay? Like you never, I mean, Ben and Jerry's has all these new flavors, right? I doubt any of us would buy the Ben and Jerry flavor that says lobster ice cream, right? I don't think we, well, maybe some of you would, right? But that's sick, okay? Quit being so weird. It, it just wouldn't mix together. It wouldn't mix together. Now, bacon and ice cream, I was against that one years ago. I'll admit I was, I was kind of, but man, it's pretty good. But, but not lobster and ice cream. Alcohol, and I was like, uh, why are you talking about alcohol? Because I'm just telling you, it's kind of, it's kind of a big deal. Even, even in the average congregation, there's many people that are struggling with alcohol. And I'm telling you, if, if your theology and the, exceed, the understanding of your own exceeding sinfulness is not there, friend, I, I, I just wouldn't go, I wouldn't go near it. But nonetheless, here's what we see in the text. We see that, they don't know their exceeding sinfulness. And, and, and hold on, because it keeps going even further. Go to verse 6. So we see they don't notice their theology. Yahweh notices. They don't notice their exceeding sinfulness. Yahweh notices. Then we see number 3. They don't notice their sinful anger. Y'all notice in life. Wrong theology of God. Don't realize your sinfulness. Prone to sinful anger. I'm just telling you. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it out of counsel, of, out of out of the counseling room, out of discipling people. I mean, in my own life and observing, just being a student of people in pastoral ministry, I've seen it. So it doesn't surprise me. Look in verse 6. For with hearts, like an oven, they approach their intrigue. That word intrigue means like ambush. All night their anger smolders. In the morning it blazes like a fire. Remember the whole oven thing where the oven was holding its temperature? And so he's making another illustration at the oven saying, just like... Your sinfulness is ready, set, go with an oven that's holding its temperature. You just need to, something that seems to get popped in the oven and you'll go after it. Same thing with anger. Is it, there's some people that their anger smolders and smolders. It's that oven that's just ready to go still. That can just bake anything that gets put in it. And he says in verse 7, All of them are as hot as an oven. They devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen. None of them call upon me. So what's interesting, the last six kings of the northern kingdom Four of those got assassinated. Interesting. The very people that were partying with these kings and, and jollying in their seating sinfulness are also the same people that overthrew and assassinated their own kings. Isn't that interesting? Why? Because that's what sinful anger does. They were boiling over it. They were stewing in it. They murdered their kings. So they, they did not notice their sinful anger. Now, here's the thing. When a person has sinful anger, they stew over things. They never stop thinking about how someone has hurt them, has done wrong to them. They stew over it. And, and by the way, did you know that you can be forgiving of somebody, then pick up that forgiveness and be unforgiving later in life? Did you know, like people think that, well, I forgave someone. I said it verbally. I, I admitted it in my mind that I forgive them. And now I'll never deal with that again. Wrong. Wrong. I mean, you can pick up, you can be forgiving of something five years later, driving down the road. You see a sign leads to a thought, then you pick that up, and then you start stewing over what that person had done. You start thinking and thinking and thinking about it. And what are you doing? You're being the oven. You're being the oven that's holding its temperature. And now you're smoldering in that. And now you're ready, set, go. This is what's happening in the text. These, whatever these people had against the kings and against their rulers, four of the last six kings were, were assassinated. We see what happens is sinful anger emerges out. Now, just to give you an understanding, the difference between righteous anger and, and, and unrighteous anger, right? Do you know there is righteous anger? Did y'all know that? 
What would be an example of righteous anger? It would be, I am upset, I am angry that defenseless children are being, have been murdered in our country. That's righteous anger, right? And a righteous response would be, I'm good at money, I'm going to support, I'm going to pray, I'm going to get involved. That would be righteous anger, righteous response. Unrighteous anger is where you're angry about something done to you personally, right? It's all about you. And by the way, you ever wonder, how can you head off anger, sinful anger? How can you even know? When I start feeling angry, shocking. Everybody looks shocked that I get angry sometimes, right? It's, I need to see this. Sh- I, I saw no shocked signs on faces when I said that. So I was hoping for something different. The first question I asked myself was this. Am I angry about something done to God or other people or myself? Now, what do you think 99.9999999999999 continue on is it? I'm angry about something done to me. My kingdom, I've been inconvenienced. My kingdom has been violated. Instantly when I start to realize that, that already, the Holy Spirit already uses that where I can start to back off and go, oh, Nick, your next, the next thing that you're about to say is probably not something you should say. So what happens with these people is this, their, their anger is all about themselves and it stews and it stews and they think about it and they think about it and they replay it and they replay it. So like, here's what happens. When you replay what someone has done to you and you replay it and you replay it and you replay it, this is how you smolder. This is how you become more bitter. You've got to replace that thought. You replace that thought. This is what, what it looks like when you're forgiving. So because they don't do that, they, st- they do not notice their sinful anger. And their sinful anger carries them all the way into malice, such maliciousness that results in actually murder. And by the way, you know this, we know this, because when we are sinfully angry, when we stood in that, we murder people in our hearts all the time. So notice this. They don't notice their theology, their exceeding sinfulness, their sinful anger, which also leads now to point number four. Are y'all still with me? Aren't you glad to be here and talk about this? Aren't you so glad I'm back from vacation? I'm like, oh. By the way, David and Noel did awesome jobs, right? I listened to their sermons. They did awesome, awesome jobs. Awesome jobs, right? I, I was like, man, we should let them do it again. I'm going to take another two to three weeks, but we probably just would have run out of money, so I had to come back, right? I mean, they did an awesome, awesome job. Awesome job. We're so blessed. Look at number four. They did not notice their corruption. So... Look in verse, uh, look in verse six. I'm sorry, I'd look in verse eight. It says, Ephraim mixes with the people. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Now you wonder, may wonder like, what is that talking about? Okay, so Ephraim is, will be, will be the most influential of the 10 tribes that were part of that Northern kingdom. Oftentimes that Northern kingdom is called Ephraim. One of the things that God had designed for Israel was that they did not actually intermarry and mix with foreign nations, okay? That's what, how God designed. Why? So that they could be a monotheistic society because all the other nations were pagans. And they knew that if you intermarried among pagan nations, among pagan people, they're going to bring their paganism, and their paganism is going to corrupt your monotheism, all right? And we see that playing over and over. We see that, like Solomon does that over and over. Solomon has these multiple wives from other kingdoms that are corrupting influence. And by the time we see things out, it's a split kingdom after, after King Solomon. We see this corrupting influence. It's something he had warned them about. Now, what happens is this. 
Ephraim mixes himself with the people. So this is what these people had done. They had mixed themselves with corrupting people so much that it corrupted their whole society. And now they're like a cake not turned. I want you to think of a pancake. You ever, have you ever cooked a pancake but only cooking it on one side? Does that work very well? No, you got to flip it, right? Have you ever cooked a pancake but forgot to turn it over? You know, you just kind of poured it and then you kind of walked over and did whatever and you just kind of forgot about it. And then by the time you get back to it, it's just completely burnt on one side, but maybe doughy on the other. This is what he's talking about. He's saying, you people, the way you have mixed yourself with people that are far from God has become a corrupting influence and you're like a cake not turned. You haven't turned it. You don't even know that you're burning on the other side. You, you've not decided to turn things over. You've just kept it one way. So this is kind of what he's trying to let them know is you're burning. You don't notice it. You don't know. And what's interesting, you put do this. Go home. Burn some cake this afternoon, right? And just prove my illustration. Go get some pancake batter, pour it out, and then just try to judge how well that pancake is baking by not turning it over. Not going to work well for you, friend, but please do it. Record it. Send it to me, okay? It'll be a great little experiment. So this is them. They're not turning things over. It's a corrupting influence. And, and looking, they are corrupting themselves with people. And here's how corruption happens. It happens really slow. You know, you know the best way to kill a frog, right? If you want to boil a frog, you don't just have boiling water and throw a frog into it, right? You put the frog in the water, and then you slowly turn the water up. You may be thinking, why would I ever eat frog anyways? It's not too bad. A little gritty, but not too bad. Strangers devour his strength. He knows it not. Look at this in verse 9. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. It's that happening so slowly, you don't know. It's like the frog boiling. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. This is how corruption happens, really slowly. I've had, by the way, you probably can't tell, but I'm really, really gray. Like, I've gone really, really gray over the last seven years. Um, And I keep my hair really short because I just don't, like long hair, and my biggest fear is to be a hippie, right? So um, I, I just don't have a, it's hard to notice that I have gray hair, and I got a lot of goop product in my head, some, my hair sometimes, so sometimes it kind of clouds over the gray. But it's interesting, like every time I go home and see my parents, they'll look at my hair and go, you're going so gray, like when did this happen? Well, little by little. This is how gray, gray happens, right? You ever, this is how people who go gray realize I'm gray. You, it didn't happen overnight. It's so slow, and you never notice it till. One day, it's like, where did all this come from? That's what corruption, that's the illustration he's trying to use in the text, that they're corrupting, and it's this slow process. You don't notice it. And remember how we said this all builds on itself. They didn't notice their theology about God was off. They didn't, which means now they don't notice the the exceeding sinfulness of their life. They don't notice sinful anger, and now they don't notice the corruption. All these things are a slow move for them. Look at number five. Now they don't notice their pride. Because of those things, they now they don't notice their pride. Look in verse 10. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. He's just saying, it's right in your face, Israel. What you're doing, I've sent these prophets. I've been telling you. I've been repeating. I've been a broken record. I've been telling you what's been going on. And your pride has gotten in the way. You can't even see this. You can't even see this. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Yet they do not return to the Lord their God. They don't seek him for all this. It's like he's saying, it's right in your face and you don't see it. Now, I know, I know parents, most of y'all have never had this happen, but you have. Have you ever confronted one of your children 
and your child lies to you. I know, we don't know anything about that. That would never happen in our congregation, right? Have you ever had that happen and your kid lies to you? And then you point out to your kid the lie through completely, I mean, like completely objective reasons where you're kind of like, no, listen, it is not saying what you're saying. This is what happened. Here's the clear evidence. Here's the clear proof. And then the kid still does what? Lies and denies it, right? It's like, and you're thinking into your mind, like, am I taking crazy pills, right? I mean, like, is this legitimate? But what's happening in the moment is pride. See, this is why, like, you can talk to somebody about their sin and they don't admit it. And what's stopping them? It's just pride. It's just pride. Even in our own personal relationships, this is what happens sometimes. It's just pride. Pride is why we won't really actually admit our sin. And by the way, by the way, I had one time someone had said to me, you're a prideful person. And I was like, I am not a prideful person. And I was like, man, maybe that was a sign I am. <laughs> how much I want to defend myself. By the way, if you ever want a good diagnostic, like how do I test pride in my life? How do I test it? There's a great way to test it. Do you think of self a lot? That's how you can know. Like prideful people are all about self. In fact, that's what you see. Like prideful people are about self. Humble people are about others. That's how it works. By the way, just even, just working in this this world of, of like, please be careful, church body. I mean, I love that we've got podcasts. We've got sermons you can download. I mean, we've got, we, I mean, you can get a book. You can right now, if you don't like this message, you can download a book and read it right now. And like, you can do, you can get resources all over the place now, right? But I'm not convinced every resource that flies under the banner of Christian is actually a good resource. And here's what I can tell you. Anytime you read a resource in the Christian world and it promotes self, be aware. Be very leery. You know, like the, the scriptures don't promote this idea of self. It promotes this idea of humility. It doesn't promote this idea of self-esteem or self-protection or self or get this for self. It promotes this idea of like humble service towards others, right? It doesn't promote this idea of like protecting self at all costs. It, it promotes this idea of like, how can you be used up to serve people and serve the kingdom? How can you be hard to offend? You know what I've noticed? You know, in, in any kind of literature, but even in the Christian world, do you know the type of books that are the best sellers? Self-help books. No, there's nothing wrong with them intrinsically at times, but only if those self-help books are really only about trying to help you to help yourself and not help you to glorify God and serve others. So here's what's happening. Like their pride is getting in the way because it's all about self. It's all what they want. And you can see this because, because look, continue looking on. And we're now at point six. They do not notice their lack of wisdom. It says over in verse um, Ephraim, uh, verse 11, Ephraim is like a dove, silly, without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread out my net over them. I will bring them down like the birds of heaven. I will discipline them according to the report made to the congregation. Woe for them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. If you notice in the next verse, he says something very interesting. They do not cry to me from the heart. They well upon their beds for grain and wine. They gnash themselves. They rebel against me. See, like, so you even see this in the people when, when they have pride, they can't even admit their own sin because it's actually all about themselves. In verse 14, he says, when you cry out to me, you're not even actually crying out to me because you're broken over your sin. 
and you're wailing and you're showing all those outward things, but really inside, you're just upset that you're not getting the goodies from me anymore. By the way, this is how pride works. It's just consumed with self. So we see this. And and, I mean, I don't know if you can see it, but this is how it kind of builds in life. When there's not a good theology of who God is, there's not an understanding of our exceeding sinfulness, there is a proneness to sinful anger in our life, we don't notice that we're now slowly being corrupted. And we don't, and then now we're in, now it leads to more pride where now we, we can't even really, I mean, it's hard to even talk to us about sensitive things in life. Like we're so prickly and offensive. Even like if our spouse or our brother or our sister or someone who's close to us tries to talk to us about something that's, that's, that's maybe a deficiency in our life, we just put up the the blocking shields and won't even entertain the thought of what they have to say. They have to be wrong, but we can't even take a smidgen of what they say and consider that there may be some truth to what they said. This is what happens with pride, which leads to this next one, number six. They don't notice their lack of wisdom. They don't notice their lack of wisdom. So it says over here, and I kind of read early and read ahead, but look in verse 11. He says, Ephraim, you're like a dove, silly. You're without sense. You don't have wisdom. You're calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. So just basically, this is what was happening. Now, the northern kingdom will someday be conquered by the northern by, by Assyria, right? So the northern kingdom starts paying tribute and taxes to the northern to to Assyria, saying, "Well, ba- basically, Assyria won't conquer us if we can just pay them off." But you can't ever pay someone off enough. It kind of broke them. So then, what they decide to do is Assyria, we're going to stop paying you taxes, and we're going to now go make an alliance with Egypt. In the end, this seemed like wisdom to them, but in the end, it was complete lunacy. I mean, one, first, you're going to start paying a people and make them richer so they can come against you someday. Then number two, you're going to stop paying them mid-stride and then go towards another country who has just as, a, has just as an unbenevolent posture towards you as them. Do you, you understand how crazy that seems? That would kind of be like, like America saying, okay, uh, man, I'm trying to think who hates us, right? I don't know. Um, that would be like us running to one foreign nation. Well, I can think a lot. I just don't want to say it, right? <laughs> Trying to keep politics out of this. That would be us running to, let's go World War II. That would be like us running to Germany and saying, Germany, protect us. Oh, you're not going to do it. Now let's run over to Japan. You protect us. All the while, everybody's kind of saying like, that's dumb. Like, why are you doing that? Well, that's because there's no wisdom in that decision. That's exactly what they're doing. He's saying, you're like a silly dove. You're running to the very people who are going to conquer you. Then you're running to the other people that have harm towards you. In the end, Assyria comes and gets them. And notice what the Lord says in the end. He says, you should have just come and called out to me. This is what you should have done. You should have called out to me. You should have called. You should have said. You, you, should, have, you should have ran to me. I'm the one that could have saved you. So he says, verse 12, as they go, I spread my net over them. I will bring them down like the birds of heaven. I will discipline them according to the report made to the congregation. The Lord in his goodness and grace disciplines them. He spreads his net and brings them back. When Ephraim's acting like a silly bird, he brings those silly birds back for their good in the end. Verse 13, woe to them for they've strayed from me. Destruction to them for they've rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. Now look at this last point. It all leads to this. In the end, they have a worldly repentance. He says in verse 14, this is point number seven. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine, they gnash themselves. They rebel against me. Though I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are 
like a treacherous or a crooked bow. So here's what's going on. They are calling out to the Lord in what's something called worldly repentance, not godly repentance. Okay, here's the difference. When you have worldly repentance, you feel bad that you got caught, and you'll actually make some, even sometimes some outward changes, but they won't last, and there's no joy in it. That's a worldly repentance. A godly repentance is there is a change of action, but there's a change of heart. There's a new delighting in God. There's a new joy that comes as a result, right? It's called worldly and godly repentance. What did they have? They had what was called a worldly repentance. They, they, they were upset because they lost the goodies, right? That was what they, they weren't upset that they had sinned against God. It was just that I lost the goodies. A lot of times that's all our repentance is. We just, we just want to get the goodies back. A godly repentance is there's a change of heart that ultimately results in an ultimate change of action long-term. And there's a long-term change, and there's a joy and a pleasure in that. But here's what I'll tell you. You're never going to get the worldly, you're never going to get the godly repentance if there's a lack of wisdom, if there's pride, corruption, sinful anger, exceeding sinfulness, and a bad theology of God. Like a domino effect that just kind of runs downhill. So that's Hosea chapter 7. Good to be back, right? Now, here's what's interesting. And worship team, you can make your way up here. You may be like, oh man, that's all bad news. Where's the good news? Well, I got some good news for you. You like good news, don't you? I like good news. It's okay. I got one person that likes good news, all right? I know the, all, the rest of you like it. You just haven't repented in your heart enough to know it, right? So all this is coming, right? I mean, look how he ends chapter 7, everybody. <laughs> they return not upward. They don't return to the Lord. I mean, they don't see their sin as something against God. They see it just for what they've lost, the goodies. They are like a treacherous bow, this worldly repentance they have. The princes fall by the sword. Because of their insolent tongue, they shall be the derision in the land of Egypt. Egypt's going to be making fun of them for, for, for how they thought Egypt could save them from Assyria. Okay, they're going to just have, uh, they're going to, there's going to be a bad opinion about them. Now go back to chapter 7, verse 1. That's all bad news, but here's the good news. Everything that's going on, God is actually trying to draw them in his grace. All the discipline that God does, it's not, for their, it's not to hurt them and harm them. It's so that he can, in the end can ultimately bring them back to himself. Look at verse 1. I love how verse 1 starts off. When I restore the fortunes of my people, then I would heal Israel. So even in the bad midst of what we think is bad news, it's really God's trying to get to the good news. He's trying to draw them back. And by the way, doesn't that remind you of the good news of Jesus? The good news of what we're so sinful we can't save ourselves, so God sends his son to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. This is the message of the gospel that permeates even the minor prophets. God warns, God helps, the people can't do it. So God disciplines them, brings them into exile so that he can sanctify them, that he can make them holy, and that he can someday bring about the Messiah from their land, I mean from their from the people of Israel. So even when we think God's doing something wrong or bad, actually in the background, he's always doing something good. And this is one of the things that makes me love to serve and worship him. He is far above my thinking. His ways are above my ways. I can do nothing but just want to behold the God that we serve and worship.